Welcome back along to this edition of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at an article by atheistic fundamentalist blogger Greta Christina on what would cause her to lose her belief in atheism and come to a belief in God. Now, before we get started, I do want to let you know that if I go dark on here for a while and don't put out a new episode for a little bit, it's because my first child is set to be born here in the next couple of weeks. Little Caleb Lucas Vela is on the horizon and will likely be taking up just a little bit of my time over the next few months. I've been trying to do an episode uh, every six weeks or a month, uh, but with Caleb showing up, it might just be a little bit longer than that. So thank you in advance for your patience and please stick around for new content coming out uh, as, as often as I have time. But I'm here now. And so let's get on with this episode, examining Greta Christina's new article. Enjoy the show. In her latest article on rawstory.com, atheist blogger Greta Christina gives a brief write-up on the kind of evidences that would be instrumental in changing her mind about the existence of God. The article is called Six Unlikely Developments That Could Convince This Atheist to Believe in God. Now, besides the fact that simple addition seems to vex her since she really only gives five developments, and I'm not so sure that developments is even a good word for what she presents, this is really a question that, that, that I've thought a lot about, in fact. The, the interplay at the intersection where several lines of new atheistic and fundamentalistic rhetoric converge, contradict, and undercut each other. We see this throughout Christina's article, where she seems to almost have a checklist of talking point terms to tick off. Faith is believing without evidence. Religious belief involves unethical and dishonest moving of intellectual goalposts. Religious belief is unfalsifiable, and we all say that nothing could change our mind, that nothing could convince us religious people otherwise. Theists are arrogant for having conviction of belief, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on she drones. She spends the first few paragraphs basically turning off a large portion of people who would want to read her article, and then playing to the bleachers of those who are already empathetic to her position. Or else, why the not-so-veiled polemics against theism and religious believers to start the article? For this article, I would like to examine Christina's statements keeping several uh, pieces of common and seemingly normative classes of new atheistic rhetoric in mind. The point of this will be to show that the implementation of this kind of rhetorical strategy by such atheists cannot be consistently applied, and therefore, what the atheists must reject for the theists, they are bound to adopt for themselves. I will set this up by posing a challenge that I often pose to my atheistic friends and have yet to ever receive a satisfactory, or even consistent, response to. And it is the question that she asks herself, but here I'll add a few follow-up questions. <clears throat> the primary question for the atheist is, what would cause you to falsify your naturalism and accept theism? Now, before any answer is attempted, usually something like God appearing before them or rearranging the stars to spell their name, consider the normal arguments for naturalism that are used to defend atheism. 
we theists are often told that delusion or hallucination or even the humble I don't know, as opposed to a knowledge claim, is more reasonable. For those who have not listened to the podcast, we only need to think of Tracy Harris's comments about why any natural claim is more foundational. This means that following Hume, for most skeptics, any possible naturalistic explanation is to be a priori preferred over and against any supernaturalistic one. In addition to this, so we're told, the position of I don't know is always to be preferred over any claim that we cannot prove empirically, and as such, I don't know, or the more assumptive, we don't know, but science will figure it out someday, will always be preferred to any answer that takes the form God is the best explanation for. Couple this with a straw man objection that whenever God is proposed as the best explanation, it is automatically a God of the gaps, a problem we're going to see haunts and vexes Christina's own answers, and you have quite the fundamentalistic cocktail. But I digress. So before someone answers my original question, they ought to consider why the conditions of their answer, which they want to give, wouldn't themselves be better explained by things like delusion, hallucination, aliens, by our brains simply being pattern-forming machines that want to find patterns where there are not any patterns, being a brain in a vat or in the matrix. Or simply saying, I don't know what caused that, but hopefully science will figure it out one day. So, with those in mind, to those atheists who say that they are objective and unbiased and would believe in God if there were only evidence, what evidence would you accept that your naturalism is false and that God exists that could not be explained by those quote unquote more probable? explanations. That is the dilemma, dilemma through which Christina's response ought to be viewed and by which we will evaluate her responses here. She writes in order to appear as one who is without bias and who would believe if there was actual evidence for God. So, let's put that claim to the test. Now, before we begin, we should also clarify that this question about what it would take for someone to believe in something or to stop believing in something is actually somewhat pointless. What it would take for me to personally stop believing in God is a purely psychological question. Maybe the means for me to revert back to my atheism would be some horrible tragedy in my life, or the same could drive Christina to belief in God. The question really shouldn't be what it would take for me personally or Christina personally to change beliefs. Rather, the question should be what ought to make us change what we believe. That is, if we're speaking purely on the level of epistemological coherence and reason, what ought to convince us of the truth or falsity of a position, not merely what moves our psyches? With that said, let us begin <clears throat> looking at how Christina approaches these issues and if she really gives substantive responses. As I noted before, she first begins by showing that this article isn't really meant for Christians. In fact, it's not really meant for anyone who disagrees with her to begin with. This is much more of an insider article meant to pander to those who already agree with her, and thus to lob softballs. She starts off with a normal pejorative and somewhat condescending comments about how she and other atheists like her are, quote, 
likely to point out that religious beliefs are usually unfalsifiable. There's no possible evidence that could prove them wrong, thus rendering them utterly useless. And even if they're falsifiable in theory, as any belief in a 6,000-year-old Earth ought to be, they wind up being unfalsifiable in practice. Side note, that's going to be a problem to her. With an endless series of denialism and goalposts moving and God works in mysterious ways waffling. We often point out that the very definition of religious faith is believing without evidence, even believing in spite of evidence that flatly contradicts the faith. We point out that when asked, what would convince you that your belief was mistaken, the answer from believers is typically, nothing, nothing would convince me that my God is not real. That's what it means to have faith. Which makes accusing atheists of arrogance more than a little absurd, but that's not important right now. End quote. Well, you're right, Christina. That really shouldn't be important. So why bring any of it up? It seems only as a kind of buffering before the storm. There's so much to, to untangle in that yarn ball of nonsense, but anyone who has listened to the podcast or followed my blog long enough will know I've addressed almost all of those types of comments. In fact, nearly all of these little parroted meme soundbite-type cliches are old, long-dead canards that show a lack of understanding or intellectual integrity on her part. For example, if you ask most Christians I know that what would falsify their belief in God, there would be ample examples given. I don't know any Christian scholar, theologian, or apologist who would respond with, well, God works in mysterious ways, or moves goalposts. In fact, what we are going to see is that the movement of goalposts is often the new atheists like Christina are quite comfortable doing. And grasping at the straw man of faith being belief without evidence is just becoming pitiful whenever it's employed, on par with those Christians who are still under the mistaken impression that arguing that Hitler was an atheist will ever be a reasonable position to maintain. So then she continues with the backpattery of her fellow brights with this statement. <clears throat> Quote, An atheist like to point out that this isn't true for us. Atheists are open to the possibility that we might be wrong, and that the reason we don't believe in God is that we haven't seen good evidence for him. If we see better evidence, we'll change our minds. End quote. Well, how open and magnanimous of her. But really? Really, Greta Christina? Are you? All of you atheists are that way? That is, I mean, that's just amazing. You guys must be the pinnacle of reasonable thought without any speck of irrationality among any one of you. <clears throat> Sorry for the sarcasm, but I mean, come on. And this is what we're about to find out. Are atheists, Greta Christina included, really open to being wrong? Or have they set up barriers around their beliefs and circled the wagons to make them functionally unfalsifiable? After clarifying that <clears throat> she's here talking about what kind of evidence would she accept that God exists, but not that such a being would be good or worthy of worship, though this shows that she is working on a lesser concept of God to begin with, something we've talked about before, she then gets into her list. So let's see how they fare. Number one. An unambiguous message. That would convince her. This is her version of 
God writing her name in large letters across the sky for the entire world to see. For her, this stands in contrast to what we have in the Bible, which she claims is ambiguous and contradictory, both of which would need way more spade work, uh, but I know she can't defend every assertion she makes in the span of a raw story article. Here, her answer is hard to buy because she basically undoes it herself in the next paragraph. She writes, quote, And for the record, yes, it's possible that this could happen without good, without God. It could, hypothetically, for instance, be accomplished by highly technologically advanced alien species. But I don't think that would be the simplest explanation. If this phenomenon happened, God would, in my opinion, be a simpler explanation than aliens. And unless I saw good evidence that the, the writing was done by aliens, God would be the provisional conclusion I would have to come to. End quote. Okay, but why? Why would you prefer God, a supernatural explanation, over aliens, a natural one? Is it just because of simplicity? Because I can think of a lot of explanations that I guarantee you hold where a single causal entity like God is simpler. But you don't hold to that one. Are you not the one who's argued that we have overwhelming evidence for natural entities, but zero evidence for non-natural ones? So why would you posit God as a provisional answer and reject aliens until there was evidence that the aliens did it? Would you not have the same lack of evidence about who rearranged the stars, and so by your own rhetoric should accept the natural explanation before the supernatural one? In fact, she writes this in the very next paragraph. Quote, Human minds are wired by evolution to see intention, even where no intention exists. Given this cognitive error, given that so much about life and the universe has already be been explained by physical cause and effect, given the thorough constancy with which natural explanations and phenomena have replaced supernatural ones thousands upon thousands of times over the course of history, when it, when it has never once happened the other way around, given all this, I see no reason to interpret the existence of the physical universe as an unambiguous message from God. End quote. <clears throat> Did you hear it? Given her own rhetoric, I simply don't believe her that this would, or to her mind actually should, cause her to abandon her atheism and adopt theism. In fact, this evaluation is bolstered further by her statement, quote, similarly, I would not be persuaded by the first cause argument, the argument from design, or the argument from fine-tuning. Same reasons, basically, end quote. Now, besides that each of these statements is a hyperlink to one of her other articles where she shows that she hardly even knows what the arguments are and can only deal with the most vapid and shallow caricatures of them, the fact that she actually discounts these arguments with the same broad brush is telling. Notice first <clears throat> that this is an argument from abductive reasoning. That is, an argument to the best explanation of a set of data, even though one may not have direct evidence of the explanation itself. Right? Do you, do you see what that's? That's an abductive reasoning. She is abducing God as the best explanation for thousand-foot letters in the sky. She doesn't have direct observation of God, but the letters in the sky themselves are evidence of a mental activity behind those letters. Okay, That's an objective reasoning. So we could ask, 
Why would she accept writing in the sky as evidence for God, but not, for example, the fine-tuning of the universe or the specified complexity of information in genetic coding? Writing in the sky is actually infinitely more probable and explainable than either the odds for fine-tuning or for the information encoded in genetic information. The odds of the latter two are, are the most vanishingly small fraction of the odds of the former. So why does she accept one and not the other? In principle, she's just given a teleological argument from fine-tuning or specified complexity, but has given one on a far more probable event, a simple sentence, and yet wants us to reject it on a far less probable event fine-tuning, specified complexity, abiogenesis, etc., which would require an even greater intelligent power. Well, as we've seen, she actually wouldn't accept the former because it should be alien since natural explanations have always trumped supernatural ones. Number two, accurate prophecies in sacred texts. She here says that if there were accurate prophecies in, sac in sacred texts, that she would believe in God. The major problem with this one, besides the fact that there are accurate prophecies, she just seems to want to ignore any actual hermeneutics, is that this is in direct conflict with what she's just stated. She just finished arguing why she wouldn't believe special revelation in ancient texts, and now she is saying that what would convince her is special revelation in ancient texts. But again, why would this make her believe in God, a supernatural explanation, as to be preferred over, let's say, futuristic time travelers, or again, aliens? Or how about just a lucky guess? Why would she prefer a supernatural explanation of God giving some type of foreshadowing predictive prophecy over a naturalistic one? Or how about, we don't know. I don't know how they got that right, but I'm sure it's something other than a sky daddy interested in my sex life. So would that actually convince her? Or would she appeal to naturalism of the gaps to explain a supernatural explanation away as the least probable of the options? In fact, what follows is a series of yes buts. Now, I would believe in accurate predictions. Yes, but only if there were a lot of them. And only if the text didn't have an ambiguity and didn't make other predictions we couldn't verify. And the big one, only if the prophecy didn't come true. Yes, that's one of her conditions. Prophecies, so she says, like those in the Bible, are often fulfilled because the people are aware of the prophecies and so act in order to get them to be fulfilled. So in other words, we would need prophecies that no one knew anything about or they didn't get fulfilled by anyone who knew anything about them. Yes, but... Uh, I'm sorry, sir. I know I asked you to hold that goalpost there. But we at the Union of Reasonable, Bri Reasonable Brights are going to need to ask you to move that about 30 yards to the left. Accurate Science in Religious Texts Here she says that if some ancient text wrote about science that was beyond its time, she would believe. 
Here the problem is centering that of, of, of what's called chronocentrism, or a belief that our time is superior to others. We can simply ask, whose science should they have reported? Should it be 21st century science? Why not 10th century science, or 15th? What about 27th century science, or 35th century science? Science changes, and does she think that what we believe now about the universe and the natural world won't ever be overturned? And what would have done, what would that have done to the original audience? Now, imagine I came and started telling you that God had come to me in a vision and told me that the universe was some way completely different than what we believe about it now. The problem was that it was so far different and advanced that not only did it just sound stupid and wrong considering our 21st century beliefs about the universe, but also was so far beyond what we could possibly test with our current technology. If that was the incidental scientific aspect of it, what would you also make of the religious aspects of it? Part of this problem is that she wants all texts to be like technical scientific manuals. The Bible, for example, is not a scientific manual. It's not meant to be a scientific manual. It's not trying to tell us about how the material world works. It tells us about God and sin and redemption. As Galileo put it, science tells us how the heavens go. The Bible tells us how to go to heaven. Here, Christina is just showing a whole cornucopia of naturalistic assumptions. But beyond that, let's assume that we did have a text in the Bible that told us, as Christina imagines, quote, And verily I say unto you, that the earth orbits the sun, despite how it appears to the naked eye, and the sun is simply another of millions upon millions of stars that appear in the sky, and that continents uh, slowly drift through the oceans, and energy is equal to mass times speed of light squared. Unquote. To this, Christina remarks, quote, I'd be convinced that God or some other divine being existed and had inspired the text in question, end quote. But then she adds, quote, again, with the same space aliens caveat noted above, end quote. Christina giveth and Christina taketh away. So the question is, if God and aliens could both be inferred, why would she pick God, a supernatural explanation, over aliens, a naturalistic one, when natural explanations are always supposed to be preferred over supernatural ones. And what about other options? Why would she not also accept I don't know as an explanation? Or how about that it was just a lucky guess? Or better yet, how about that they had some kind of unknown proto-scientific machine, kind of like a telescope, that have just been, <clears throat> I don't know, lost to history that allowed them to observe the solar system a lot like we do with our modern telescopes? Her response, again, just seems like so much underhanded rhetoric. I doubt if any theist or Christian made this type of argument to her today that she would buy any of it. Number four one successful religion. Here she imagines that people of a particular religion might have noticeably better lives, by which she means like lower birth uh, rates of birth defects, though she does cast a pretty wide net and she says, quote, if believers in, say, the Mormon faith or the Baha'i faith 
or the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, were found to be far healthier, wealthier, and happier than believers in other faiths if their prayers came true significantly more often, if they had far fewer accidents and birth defects and genetic diseases and uh, pediatric cancer, and this difference was statistically significant, much greater than could be accounted for by higher wealth or social status or something, I would be persuaded that God existed and that this faith was the correct one and that God was rewarding these believers for their correctness of their faith. End quote. Yet again, the question is, why would she posit God? Couldn't aliens be intervening? Maybe it has to do with diet. Maybe something in their religion is causing them to eat different and be healthier. We know from studies of religion that religious believers are happier and healthier in statistically significant ways. That's a fact in our current world. So why would she not posit that increased emotional health would add less emotional and physical strain and increase positive medical health, for example? Again, <clears throat> why would she make the leap to God as the best explanation when any number of possible natural explanations abound? She also makes an interesting condition here. For her, so it would only count if these were not explainable by normal social sciences. Did you guys notice what she is here endorsing? Would she ever, ever, ever allow a Christian today to say that God is the best explanation because we cannot explain it by current science? That just is the God of the gaps. In fact, that is a fallacious kind of argument that even most Christians and theologians themselves reject. <clears throat> and here is an avowed atheist saying that a God of the gaps would be convincing to her. My trust that she is being forthcoming with us is minimal at best at this point. Number five, inexplicably accurate information gained during near-death experiences. Here she starts off by explicitly stating that this wouldn't convince her that God exists. She says, quote, This is a slightly different category. It's more about evidence for an immaterial soul than evidence for God. But I'm going to bring it up here anyway. End quote. In other words, this isn't something that would be evidence for her that God exists. It's a smokescreen. Oh, look how open I am. I must be open about the God question to them. I, I'm such an objective thinker that you should respect and take what I'm saying seriously. <laughs> and look how she prefaces again. Quote, if a person who was near death or who was having some other sort of supposed psychic experience were to gather information that could not possibly have been gathered in any physical way. End quote. Now she adds that it would have to be testable to know that it wasn't based on confirmation bias or have experimental errors, but look at what the argument is. It's a psychic of the gaps. If we don't have any sciency explanations now, then it would be a real psychic. Would she actually allow that kind of argument to the theist today? In fact, considering the work of those like Susan Blackmore, and you all know how much I love Susan Blackmore or something, the skeptics are ardent that just because we can't explain the phenomena of near-death experiences now, it doesn't mean that we can infer a real persistent self after death. As Tracy Harris said on The Thinking Atheist, and I can't believe I'm quoting her, dying brains 
Why would you trust them? Now, I'm not a near-death experience proponent. I never argue from near-death experiences. I doubt I would since I myself am pretty skeptical of them. And that is largely due to the numerous problems with even trying to identify when the event or the experience took place since it would be nearly impossible to pinpoint the timeline from the subjective perspective of the person who's having the experience. We don't know if it's when they were still uh, a conscience and alive. We don't know if it was while they were dead. We don't know if it's after they've been resuscitated. We can't pinpoint their experience on some timeline. Now, there's some problems with this, since we do have some reports of near-death experience victims who could give some very hard-to-explain details. For example, what color was the abandoned sneaker on the roof of the hospital? It's not clear that any person being rushed into a hospital for cardiac arrest would have the time or interest to climb to the roof to find some random item that they could later say they saw just in case they had a flatline experience and were later asked about it. Now, would that be sufficient for Christina to give up her naturalism? If someone said that they knew the color of a shoe on the roof that they had no other way of knowing, I highly doubt it. Likely, she would look for any naturalistic explanation, no matter how unevidenced, unproven, or unprovable, and posit that, even if she doesn't say that it's true, as a more probable explanation. Is the bar too high? Christina ends by imagining that some believers will object that she has set the bar too high with these examples. Again, uh, she says it was six, it was actually five, and one of them wasn't even what would cause her to believe in God. But that aside, she says that, that uh, we would object that nothing could ever live up to that high of a standard. Well, in fact, I wouldn't argue that the standard is too high. I would argue that it's too inconsistent. What she allows as evidence, she would not actually allow as evidence from a theist. What she would find compelling at such a small magnitude, such as a three-word sentence, she refuses to find compelling at magnitudes that are almost indescribably, innumerably larger in the actual world, such as fine-tuning or specified complexity. It would be like saying that she thinks that Mary Had a Little Lamb shows signs of an author, but War and Peace must have just been random acts of hail hitting a typewriter. She continues on in quite a bit more ranting based on uh, innumerable unjustified assumptions. If God were real, nobody would be an atheist. Nobody would disagree about religion, and on and on. But here the question is, what would actually cause her to believe in God? So far, there doesn't seem to be an honest answer. I also, I also can't close the show without pointing out one last nonsensical thing that Christina and others like her love to say. She writes, quote, Besides, just because God hasn't offered these pieces of evidence so far <clears throat> doesn't mean he never will. Maybe he'll decide that he tried sending his message with the flood, and he tried with Jesus. But obviously, none of that worked. Humans can be kind of thick-headed sometimes. So hey, why not try that hundred-foot letter in the sky thing that this atheist chick keeps gassing on about? End quote. <clears throat> so starting off with a small handful of people, 
in a tiny backwoods area of a Roman Empire with no money, no status, no power, no standing, and rapidly becoming the most believed religion in the world for the past 1,700 years, and with the majority of the world, multiple billions of people alive today, Obviously, that didn't work because one radical feminist, atheistic fundamentalist, anti-biblicist, Greta Christina doesn't believe. I think there's a song about someone thinking that everything is about you. She ends by saying that if God writes hundred-foot letters in the sky, that she would believe. To her, that's her going out on a limb. That's going where the evidence leads. That, my friend is taking the risk of exposing her beliefs and worldviews to falsification. Well, how many of you are actually convinced that she's really being genuine? That any of these would really be something that she would endorse that would convince her? Do you think that she would allow any of these kinds of arguments from Christians today? Again, I'm not talking about what would uh, subjectively uh, or, or move her psyche to actually believe in the real world. I got to imagine <clears throat> that if she really did see her name rewritten in the stars, that it might cause her to believe in, in, in a subjective sense. But what we're here talking about is if it was just cold, logical argumentation. Why would a single three-word sentence in the sky tell her God did it, but a genetic code with specified information that contained, specified complexity that contains more information than what's stored in the Library of Congress. Are you seeing the problem? Are, are you seeing the problem? Do you think that she'd really allow any of these from Christians today? As of right now, it seems like she either actually finds God of the gaps convincing and she ignores, ignores abductive explanations such as fine-tuning and specified complexity, but prefers it on orders of magnitude smaller on simple one-to-three-word sentences, or she has set up her worldview in such a manner that it, it is, in fact, unfalsifiable, and she will dogmatically hold on to it for dear life while denying arguments, evidence, and clear reason in favor of rhetoric, caricatures, special pleading, and yes, moving those goalposts. Bravo, Greta Christina, bravo. Thank you for showing us that many atheists can be blind in their dogmatism and unwilling to subject their own viewpoints to critical scrutiny or falsification. Bravo. And for that, we thank you. That does it for us here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me and share what would falsify your belief in atheism or your belief in theism, feel free to visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or visit the Freed Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook for this and other exciting content. Thanks again for joining us, and have a great night.